0: they gather around. And in this instance, they gathered to such an extent they couldn't even stop for a meal. Now, think about how busy Jesus must have been to be constantly surrounded by people. The The thought comes to my mind of burnout. Wouldn't he get tired? Wouldn't he get worn out from all of this? It, it happens over and over and over again that all of these folks are gathering around and, and they want to hear him speak. They want to hear him teach. They, we've seen several times already they want to be healed. They want to gather around him for be, the benefit that that provides in a variety of different ways. I would expect that he would get exhausted with all of that. Uh, it says that he came home. Now, where was his home of operations? Does anybody remember? Where, where did he keep going to? Where was home? Capernaum. Okay? So he's he's at a city on the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he's made his home base of operations. Now the scripture doesn't tell us that he built a house or that he owned a house. The word here for home is simply a a house. And it's the one that he keeps going back to. Um, there's a lot of possibilities of what that could be. It might have been Peter's house. It might have been his own house. He might have. He was a carpenter. He could have built one. We, we don't know. But he had his base of operations in this area. And that's where he went back to. And when he gets there, when he arrives, people just flock to him. Every time that he's there, people are flocking around. This time, it's to such an extent, he can't even eat a meal. And so... His own people, we're going to find out here in a little bit that this includes his mother and his brothers, potentially even his sisters. He had he had a natural family, um, and they come and they are going to try and take custody of him. They're going to try and get him away from all that. Now, why did they think that he was crazy? Uh, we're not explicitly told in this case exactly what it was that they thought, but for some reason they decided he's crazy. And, and we need to do something about that. It's possible that they thought that he was just so overwhelmed that he was going to experience burnout and that they needed to get him away from that. It's possible that... Because everybody, you know, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the ones that he'd been at, interacting with, they were so against him that they, they must have concluded, okay, he's, he's gone off the rocker, he's crazy, we need to get him out of that to protect the family name. We're, we're not told exactly why, but for some reason they, they come to the conclusion that he is crazy and they need to do something about that. Now, it's interesting that these are the people who love him. They want what's best for him. They're trying to take care of him, and yet they have concluded that he must be a lunatic. They they have decided that he is, uh, you know, he's lost it. He has lost his senses. He's crazy, and we need to step in and protect him and do something for him. Now, it doesn't express a whole lot about them, but the last we saw of where Mary was, she was in Nazareth, which is a distance of about 40 miles. Now, whether she was still living there or not, we don't know for sure, but if she had to travel that distance, this isn't just a, you know, oh, I'm going to go next door and, and talk to him. They made plans, and they decided, you know, we need to do something about this. And it's not just Mary, it's also Uh, Jesus' brothers, which we find out more about them in chapter 6, so we're not going to delve into them too much, but there were other siblings. They were his half-siblings from Joseph and Mary. that, That was a normal couple. They had more kids. They had babies, and those siblings had grown up with Jesus. Now, at this point, they don't trust Jesus. They don't, they don't know him. We're going to find out more about those individuals later. But they didn't know Jesus, and they weren't trusting him. They weren't his disciples. They weren't following him. And so they had come to this conclusion that he must be crazy. And therefore, we have to do something about it. They had traveled some distance. Like I said, it's, it's possible that they weren't in Nazareth anymore. We don't know. That's just the last place that we knew of. But wherever it was that they were living at that point, they had to travel. They had to get there to take custody of him. They were willing to do this, and I, like I said, I think that these are the, the people who loved him. They wanted what was best for him. They were trying to do what's best for him, but they didn't understand him. They had concluded he must be a lunatic. So of those, of those three options, liar, lunatic, or lord, they had concluded that he was crazy. He was a lunatic. So they were going to do something for his own good, but they were going to do something about it. Now, at this part, point, Mark does something interesting. Mark uses a lot of literary techniques and features, and he's actually going to do that right here because he starts a story and then he stops, and he, he inserts something else in the middle, and then we'll continue with that first story later. It's you know, there's you, you start reading commentaries, and there's all kinds of talk about why he did this and that, and the we don't know. Doesn't matter. That's his way of expressing and telling the story. And it kind of heightens what's happening so that we understand this fits together as a full unit. And Mark is trying to let us know certain things about who Jesus is. And so he kind of uses this ABA type sandwich where he he starts off with the family and then he inserts this interaction about the scribes and then he'll continue with the family again here in a little bit. So, we, we find out that these people, his, his own people, the ones who loved him, the ones who wanted to take care of him, they travel, they show up, they're going to help him out, and then something else completely different happens. And we're, we're kind of left wondering, okay, so did they take custody? What, what happens? Well, we'll get back to that. In the interim, though, we find out that there are scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, who are the scribes? We've, we've addressed them, we've talked about them a little bit already, but who are the scribes? Anybody remember? Do what, Paul? Okay, they were religious leaders. They were were teachers. They were the law. Lawyers. That's the word I'm trying to get out. They were the ones who had read the law They knew the law. They understood the law. That was their profession. They were oftentimes the professional readers as well because not everyone was able to read. This wasn't a highly literate society. And so they would stand up and they would read the law. They would read the Old Testament and let people know what was going on. They were supposed to be the experts in the law. Now, we've also seen the Pharisees. Who remembers what the Pharisees are? Just a quick review on that one. Anybody? Nobody remembers who the Pharisees are? We've run into them. Okay, go ahead. They were the religious leaders. Okay. They were a group of religious leaders. Now, oftentimes it's, it's easy to forget. Okay. Who, who are we talking about? What's going on? Um, I've got just a, a simple way that I sometimes make a comparison and remember. The scribes are like lawyers. Okay. We have lawyers today, right? The scribes are lawyers, but the Pharisees are kind of like a political party. Take your pick, Republican, Democrat, I'm not going there. But they're like a political party. There's actually another group that is going to come up at other times called the Sadducees. That's the other party. And again, I'm not, I'm not going into politics, but those are two groups that kind of have some differences. And they argue back and forth. Um, and they are the leaders of the Israelite people. But there's this, this other group that's the scribes. And like I said, that would be like the lawyers, Republicans and Democrats both have lawyers in their groups, and so the scribes, they could be from any background or any religious belief. They were just the experts in the law. They were the experts in the Old Testament who were there to express and explain what the Bible said. There's something unique about this group, though. In the past, we've just seen the scribes and the Pharisees. Like I said, there's another group that comes up in other Gospels later, but the scribes and the Pharisees, but we haven't really delved into them a whole lot. This one, though, is a different group. This is a group of scribes that came down from Jerusalem. So there's almost a uh, an official capacity that they're coming in, and almost like the, the leadership in Jerusalem were saying, hey we've heard these stories. We know that there's stuff going on. You need to go check this out. You need to go deal with this and address this. Um, it would almost be like if uh, around here, if there was a delegation sent from Salem of the, the lawyers of the state were coming into our area to address something. It's, it's something a little bit different. This isn't like, you know, going down and just talking to the lawyers or the, the leadership of our parties in this area. This is something official coming from the capital to address a situation and an issue. Particularly, they were coming down trying to discredit Jesus. That's, that's really why they were there. Um... The the interactions that Jesus has already had, we looked at five of those. Where it started off, they were asking some legitimate, reasonable questions, and it went downhill from there to the point that the, the Pharisees decided, you know what, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to execute him. We need to kill him off so that he does not spread this this teaching that he's doing. Well, now there's a official delegation, a group from Jerusalem that has come down, a group of these these scribes, these lawyers, who are coming down to address him and to deal with all of these, these things, these claims that he's made. I told you, Mark is letting us know exactly who Jesus is. We're faced with that, that question. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Well, these scribes, they've already come to their conclusion. Uh, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and they were saying, this, this is the party line that they arrived with, they're saying he is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, obviously, the question comes up: Who's Beelzebub? Who, who is that? What's what's going on there? Did anybody look that up in advance and identify? Okay, who is that? Okay, he's the prince of demons. Do what? He's Satan, right? He's the adversary. He's the accuser. He is uh, the the prince of the demons. The leader of. The underworld, in essence, not not the underworld. Um, those who are in in opposition to God. the the term Satan means adversary. The term devil or diablos means accuser, and the the term Beelzebub means Lord of filth or Lord of flies. And it was it was actually a pejorative term um, that harkened back to some of the Old Testament of a. A individual who was uh, the lord of that country, that nation, but it, it becomes a pejorative term that ends up being the lord of filth or the lord of flies. And so they all, all three of those terms refer to the same person, and it's, it's just a variety of epithets. So when we hear Satan, when we hear the devil, when we hear Beelzebub, all of those are pointing to this same individual that stands in opposition to God that stands in opposition to Christ. He is not someone that we want to be following, not someone that we want to be associated with. And yet that's the accusation that they're saying, that he is possessed by Satan. That That's what the scribes are saying, that Jesus is possessed by Satan and that he is casting out demons under the authority of the ruler of demons. So, they have concluded that he is a liar. Satan is, is called the... the uh, leader of liars. And so this is this is an issue. They've come to the conclusion that he is under the authority and the power of the that one that is opposed to anything that is God's, anything that God expects or desires. Now there is a lot in scripture about Satan. Um, there are various Old Testament passages that are pointed to as referencing his fall. Um, he comes up quite a bit in Revelation chapter 20. Um, he's pointed out as the great demon, or, sorry, great dragon, as the serpent, as the devil, and Satan. All of those terms are used in Revelation 20 verse 2 to point to the exact same person. Um, and Job chapter 1 really gives us an example of when Satan goes before God and interacts with him. But there's, although he comes up a lot in Scripture, there's not a lot of focus on him. We don't know a ton about who he is, where he comes from, all of that stuff, though there's a lot of, of indicators. Um, but he and his followers are always subject to the authority of God. We've seen those demons come up multiple times. And last week we even saw an episode where when the demons, when the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him. They, they had no power, no ability. They did not resist. They couldn't resist Jesus. He, uh, Mark always describes Jesus as having authority and power over them. And the religious leaders have come to the conclusion that the only reason that Jesus could have that power or have that authority was if he was possessed by Satan himself. That's quite the accusation. That's quite an issue. So Jesus is going to address that head on says he called them to himself and he began speaking to them in parables so what what is a parable obviously we hear about them quite a bit but what is a parable it's a story okay do what a a lesson it's a teaching tool the, the word itself means to put two things side by side. That's the idea. And so what happens with a parable is that we take something that we see or recognize a physical example and pair it with a spiritual example so that we can understand the spiritual example based on the physical example. Typically, we're going to use this term in reference to ways and things that Jesus says um, and the way that he teaches. And and it doesn't have to be physical and spiritual. This technique is used a lot just to teach and to give examples. But Jesus is going to use them in a variety of ways. Um, Other things that can be used as parables is a proverb or a riddle or even just using figures of speech. All of those would fit in this category or this idea of teaching with parables. And so Jesus is going to call them to himself, and he is going to teach them with a parable. He's going to put two ideas side by side to help them understand the fallacy of their logic, that, that they've come to a conclusion that is unsupported and makes no sense and it fails. Now, apparently in ancient times, uh, there was a concept or an idea that being insane and being demon-possessed were often linked that they were very similar ideas. Um, Not necessarily that they're exactly the same, but that being crazy was caused by demon influence or vice versa. So what we're seeing happen with this whole episode is that his family come thinking that he's crazy and these religious leaders come thinking that he's possessed by a devil or by the devil. And so they're, they're kind of very similar. They're not on the same page, but they're both ascribing... To, say, to to jesus things that aren't quite accurate and that's that's an issue you'll notice however that these leaders they don't challenge the validity of what he was doing they never question whether demons were being cast out because that was quite obvious that was blatant they were bowing down before him they had no ability to resist him they they acknowledge that jesus has authority over the demons. They just question where did that authority come from. Well, like I said, Jesus is going to use parables. He's going to use uh, this method of teaching by putting two ideas side by side in order to show them really the absurdity of their accusations, that their conclusion had no basis in fact or reality. He asks them a simple question. How can Satan cast out Satan? It's a good question. Like, like just think about what you're accusing me of in this moment how, you're saying that i am possessed by satan and yet i'm kicking out satan's followers that doesn't make a lot of sense think about that for a moment how can satan cast out satan verse 24 if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand well, that makes sense. We, we know of of nations where there's, there's infighting and that results in that nation falling apart. In fact, these are the scribes. They're the ones who know the law. They know the Old Testament. They know of a time in which, multiple times, in which there was civil war within Israel and that led to the fall of Israel. They, they should be able to recognize that doesn't make sense that when there's infighting amongst the kingdom, that's not going to build that kingdom. We're not going to be a good idea. That's not going to be a good thing. The other one that he, he gives, verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Again, let's let's think about who is he talking to? These guys ought to know the Old Testament. They ought to recognize, oh, wait a minute. When the nation of Israel split, that was the house of David divided and did not follow each other they fought against each other that that doesn't make sense why would satan set up one of his followers to start kicking out his other followers to accomplish these things it, it, it's absurd it makes no sense if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand and if satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but he is finished if what you're saying, if what the, the scribes are saying were true, then Satan is defeating himself. He's kicking the supports out from under himself. He's getting rid of his own ability to function. He's finished. He's done. He has no, no leg to stand on, if what you're saying is true. And so Jesus makes it very, very clear to them that your, your idea is absurd, It would make no sense for Jesus to kick the support out of his own kingdom or remove the structural integrity of his own house or cause himself to fall. Now, in this next section, uh, I I missed it the first time I read it. Actually, the first couple of times I read it. There's a major contrast that's thrown in. In English, we use the, the word but for a variety of different things. In, in Greek, there are a couple of different ones, and this is a, a significant shift. And so I had been reading this one through and thinking, okay, this, this just flows straight. Verse 27 flows straight out of verse 26. It's a continuation. How do we understand this? What's going on here? What, why, why does he start talking about binding a strong man and, and all of that? What, what's happening? And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's a contrast, there's a shift. And so what Jesus is doing, instead of of saying, okay, you know, it, it makes no sense that I would be fighting against Satan if I'm possessed by Satan, what he's saying is Satan would be finished if he was doing that. But the reality of the matter is Satan is finished, but not by how you're saying he would be, but by a different way. Verse 27, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Okay. It's not possible for someone to walk into this house and defeat Satan. He's, Satan's a strong man. Satan is, is ruling and, and having all kinds of stuff going on. And so, how is it that God's going to defeat that? Well, he's going to come in and bind the strong man first, get him out of the way, and then plunder the house. Israel had gone completely away from God. They were not following him, they were not doing the right things. The the spiritual leaders that we've seen so many times are are going the opposite direction. And Jesus has come on the scene to draw them back, to bring them out of that captivity, to to bring them back to God. How is he going to do that? He's got to get rid of, got to cast out all of these demons and and release them from the power of this strong man of Satan and bring them back into the power and the authority of God. And so what he's what he's doing is binding. Yeah, I'm I'm kicking out all of these demons. I'm defeating them. I'm getting rid of them. But I'm not doing it as Satan is controlling me and telling me, okay, I'm going to get them out of the way. I'm doing this under a different power, under a different authority, for a different reason, because we do want this house to fall. But not because Satan is against himself and causing himself problems but because God is going to defeat Satan. God is going to overcome Satan. Now I already mentioned there's been absolutely no resistance. Every time that Jesus shows up and and is driving out a demon they they just go. Uh, We... When we were doing uh, the Wednesday night study through Revelation, um, the, the example of Godzilla versus Bambi was brought up. If you've seen that one or you're familiar with that one, like there is absolutely no resistance, no fight, no nothing. Jesus is in control. He is in charge completely. He has total authority over all of this. And he is in the, bi- in the process of binding that strong man, Satan, and getting him out of the way. Because he has plans, he has intentions, he has what he's doing and what is going on. And so, Jesus has come in to first bind the strong man, to get him out of the way, and then plunder his house. Truly I say to you, verse 28, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this one is one of those challenging passages. You've probably heard different things on it and studied different things on it. And honestly, this, this is one of those where um, sometimes when you're preaching straight through something, it it's, would be nice to be able to avoid problem passages, challenging passages. And yet, that's not what we want to do. We want to take all of Scripture accept it and apply it and use it and follow it and study it. And so, yes, this is a challenging passage. What's, what's going on with this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What, what is an unpardonable sin is the, the term that's often used. How do we, how do we deal with that? Well, notice uh, Jesus is shifting a little bit. He's, he's changing from addressing the question of the scribes to addressing the scribes themselves. They had, they had come up with this idea that he was under the power of the devil and that's why he was doing these things. And he, just, he addresses that issue, blows it out of the water, says, you make no sense. Here's what I'm really doing. I'm coming in as the authority and I am binding Satan. I'm getting him out of the way because God is at work and he's going to do great things. And now let me address you. Let me talk to the scribes directly. Um, and he, he addresses them. They had accused Satan him of violating God's laws repeatedly over and over and over again. They had questioned him about blasphemy. They had said that he was violating the Sabbath laws. Had, they, they were saying that it, his, his dining habits made no sense, that he was, he was eating with, with sinners and tax collectors. How dare he? They had accused him of all kinds of things. And at this point, uh, Jesus turns and addresses them. And he's, he's going to deal with that Directly. They had accused him of blasphemy when he said to a man, Your sins are forgiven. You remember that back in uh, chapter 2, verse 7? He told a man that his sins were forgiven, and they said, Well, that's blasphemy because only God can do that. The question is, Who is Jesus? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Well, that's the question that has to be asked. And Jesus is going to answer them directly and say, hey, you've accused me of blasphemy. Let me explain blasphemy to you. So really the question comes up then, what is blasphemy? What what does the word even mean, to blaspheme? Anybody? Do what? Okay, disrespect would be one, one way. Anybody else? To talk against. Is that what you were going to say as well? Uh, the The word itself means injurious speech. That's that's really what it comes down to: to say something of of injury or to speak evil of someone. We would use the term slander, and so the all all of those really fit into this idea of what is blasphemy. It's saying things that aren't aren't true, with the intention of causing harm or damage. And so if if Jesus were trying to damage the name of God, then he would be blaspheming. But that doesn't make sense if Jesus is purporting to be God. And, but he's going to turn this attention back to the scribes and say injurious speech, speaking evil of someone, slandering someone, you know, even that, God can forgive. Let's, let's read it. Truly I say to you, All sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. It says, whatever blasphemies they blaspheme. Whenever they do this, even that can be forgiven. Like, I I think that Jesus wants them to understand, first of all, that there is a lot of opportunity for forgiveness. All sins can be forgiven. But then we get to verse 19 but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin what's what's going on there well jesus begins with a phrase that is going to come up repeatedly he says truly truly i say to you uh the idea is amen or or let it be um and we use that type of a a phrase if you've ever heard someone say well honestly such and such or if to, to tell you the truth, I don't really like peanuts or, you know, whatever. Well, that's a way that we normally start off a phrase. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Not, not at all how Jesus is dealing with this. Um, in, in fact, I would, I would kind of warn against using that those terms like honestly or to tell you the truth. Well, you should always be speaking the truth. So why, why do you preface it in that way? But that's not what Jesus is doing here. When he says... Um, Truly, I say to you, he's not expressing it in that way. What what would often happen, um, you'll, you'll recall, when the rabbis would stand up to speak, they would, would say, according to rabbi so-and-so, they were doing an appeal to authority, is what was happening. And then everybody would agree, amen, or what you have said is true. What Jesus does here is he appeals to his own authority. He says, not, not what Rabbi so-and-so said, or not what you've heard from tradition and all of this stuff, but truly, of, of a truth, what I say is this. And so he's letting him know that it is under his authority that he is, is giving this expression. Um, this is much like how the Old, Old Testament prophets would say, thus says the Lord. He's saying, thus says me. And he's putting himself in a position of authority to make this statement. So when he then makes this sweeping statement about forgiveness, that all sins may be forgiven, he said, hey, I have the authority to forgive sins. We already saw that earlier. And all kinds of sins will be forgiven, even blasphemy, which they had accused him of. Now, Jesus never sinned. He never did any of the things that were against God's law. But even those who who did, when that occurred, they can be forgiven. There is forgiveness available. So how then do we deal with this verse? This section has been a, a difficult one. And like I said, sometimes it's, uh, it's tempting to skip over hard things. But I don't think that we should skip over difficult passages or challenging things or, or things that have caused confusion to others. I think instead we need to dig in and learn what's going on. Uh, verse 29 um in this episode both in matthew mark and luke in, in all three of those uh is the only place that deals with this idea of blasphemy against the holy spirit or this idea of an eternal sin so when you dig through scripture to try and understand what's going on it's a good idea to find out where else is it talked about well the only places that it's talked about is in this episode now all three Gospels record this episode, but this is the only time that it comes up. Um, The closest parallel that we find in the Old Testament deals with commands concerning atonement for unintentional versus intentional sins. In the Old Testament, there were times at which someone could have atonement or forgiveness if they did something unintentionally. But if they deliberately set out to reject God's law, to do what he had told them not to, in willful, intentional, and defiant sins, that person was to be cut off, to be removed from Israel, even to the point of being killed. They were done. There was no sacrifice that they could offer. There was nothing that they could do because they set out with the intentional purpose of defying God and disobeying his law. Uh, We see those come up in Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, as well as in Numbers chapter 15. Those were times in which they were cut off and removed from Israel. That's the the closest Old Testament parallel that we have to this idea of an eternal sin. Mark is going to clarify the statement in verse 30, when he says that the reason that that this is, is happening is because they were saying he has an unclean spirit or that he's possessed by Beelzebub, or that he's under the authority or control of Satan. That's the the context. That's what's happening that is causing this to, to come about. Now, hope is given at the start that all sins, even blasphemy, can be forgiven. But the one who willfully and intentionally, defiantly ascribes what the Holy Spirit is doing to Satan is not ever possessing forgiveness but is subject to judgment always for their sins. So when we, when we come to this question of, you know, what, what is the unpardonable sin? Is there any sin that I can do that is, is so terrible that God can never forgive it? it? Jesus has already said, there is forgiveness for the sons of men for anything, whether it's blasphemy or, or anything else. Now, he's not making light of sin. But he is saying that it is possible to be forgiven. But when someone can see what's happening, can know everything that's going on, can be given proof after proof after proof that Jesus is God himself, under the power of the Holy Spirit, doing what God expects, casting out these demons, and then turn around and say, well, that's Satan doing what the Holy Spirit is doing? That's an issue. Not... They, they don't possess forgiveness because they are constantly in sin. They are always sinning. If you can't tell the difference between Satan and the Holy Spirit, you cannot figure out the most basic principles of right and wrong. Thus, you are always in sin and not in forgiveness. How can a people be forgiven? By accepting Jesus. By trusting the completed work of Christ's death, burial, and bodily resurrection. Now, obviously, Mark hasn't gotten to that yet, but that's how we get that forgiveness. The forgiveness that is available for any sin, for all sins, is by putting our faith and trust in the completed work of Christ. There is no other way. So then, if someone rejects the Holy Spirit's draw and continuously is against the Holy Spirit, they will never have forgiveness. And because there is no other way of salvation, no other way to be forgiven, if you reject what God has given as that and speak ill of the Holy Spirit, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, rather than trusting him, you're assuming that what he's doing is actually Satan's doings, you don't have forgiveness. You've never received it. So this isn't some a mystical thing, or some, well, maybe they said the right thing, or the wrong thing, or, or at just the right moment, they did the wrong. It, it's not that. That's the way that some people try and, and deal with this. Oh, well, if you, you, you can be forgiven of anything except this one thing. Well, that's, that's not what he said. He said, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies, they blaspheme. But if someone sets themselves up defiantly, intentionally, Completely ignoring what God is doing, ascribing that to Satan instead of to God, then they don't have forgiveness. They have not accepted the one way of salvation that God has given. The scribes had had a front row seat to the glory and the majesty and the authority of Jesus the Messiah. They had seen the light, they had seen everything that he had done, but being lovers of darkness, They rejected it and ascribed to Satan the power of God. Instantly, Mark is going to shift the focus, which to me, I'm reading through this, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's their response? What happens? What's going on? Well, he he shifts back to where we started with the family. Um, This family arrives, and they are planning to take him into custody because they thought he was crazy. They get there, and they send a message in, and they they want Jesus to come out to them. And the multitude that was sitting around him, uh, they said, hey, your, your mother and your brothers, they're here. They want to talk to you. They, they arrive and send that message, but Jesus is going to use that as a teaching moment. He's going to continue what he's doing and teach and draw a comparison between his physical family that's outside and his spiritual family, those that wanted to follow him. Now, Again, I started off with the argument made famous by C.S. Lewis of lunatic, liar, or Lord. The scribes clearly thought the first. Obviously, they thought Jesus was just a liar, and that's why they wanted to kill him and get rid of him. His family thought that he was a lunatic, that he was crazy. But the crowd is asked kind of the same question. What, what do you think? What do you conclude on this? And Mark is, is setting it up so that we also, as the reader, are faced with that. Okay, so what's going on? What are we going to do? Jesus gives an answer. Um, he answers them and looks around at the, the crowd and says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He looks about at those who are sitting around him and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. He, he says, Look, you guys you're my mother and my brothers. Why? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. What is the will of God? You know, this is probably one of those great questions that teenagers and young adults are constantly asking. Maybe even older adults and grandparents and great-grandparents, as the case might be, are are often faced with that question, what does God want me to do? What is the will of God? Jesus sets this up and he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. They are the family, the relationships that I am most focused on and have the greatest desire to be a part of is that. Now, he's, he's not trying to get rid of his natural family his physical family in fact later on we're going to find out that jesus takes steps to ensure that his mother is cared for so he loves his mother don't don't think that he's rejecting his mom but he is using this as a teaching moment and as example of what's his priority what's his focus what's his his desire whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother But what is the will of God? This question, this issue could be an entire sermon. We could take a very, very long time dealing with it. I'm not going to this morning, but I do want to look at a few passages, give you a a few things to look up and to consider as we go through for, for your consideration on this. Um, if you like alliterations, I'm going to give you one here because these fit together and they're they're memorable in this way: sanctification, submission, and sinlessness. That's the will of God. That's what He wants: our sanctification, our submission, and our sinlessness. First Thessalonians chapter four verse three. In the in the context. Um, this is dealing with a set-apartedness, dealing with sexuality, which is a big issue and a big question in our society today. I'm not going through all of this passage, obviously, so I would encourage you to dig in um, and study it yourself. But in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God. Well, that makes it easy to know what the will of God is, doesn't it? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he, he goes on and he talks about a lot of things. But what, what is sanctification? Well, we've, we've discussed that one a few times in the past. It is the idea of being set apart. Set apart for God. Being his and not our own. That's his desire. That's what he wants from us. That's what he wants for these individuals. That they be set apart for God. Uh, like I said, in the context specifically it's dealing with sexuality, with our most intimate, close relationships. Those even need to be set apart for God. The next one is submission. In first Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two verses thirteen through fifteen. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What does God want? What is the will of God? That we would submit to those who are in authority. That's challenging. That's not easy. That's not necessarily what we always want to do. And yet clearly it says that is the will of God. Why? Why that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The way that we live impacts the, what others understand and what they're able to learn and what they know about God. And so the will of God is that we live differently, that we live lives that are separated for him and that we live lives in submission to the authorities that he has put over us. The last one that I'm gonna look at this morning is in First uh, Peter chapter four and verse two. And I, I call this one sinless. That's, that's the intention. That's the desire. That's the, the aim and the goal. And when someone says, well, you should live sinless, I don't know about you, but my first thought that pops to my head is, I can't do that. There's no way that I can. Well, Duh. No, you can't. Acknowledging that, admitting that is step one. How is it that we can avoid sin? That we can not sin only through the power of Christ? only through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not us. It's not that we can do this, and yet it is what God expects. We must arm ourselves with a purpose to spend the rest of our lives not following the lusts of men, but following the will of God, which is this idea of sinlessness. So, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's that's what God wants, is for us to live for him i got one more, and this doesn't fit into the alliteration. This is just one. It came up on Wednesday night. Um, it had the potential of coming up yesterday at our leadership meeting, and we got talking other Bible things and, and didn't get to this one. But Micah chapter 6, verse 8. When, when people, primarily I've worked with, with teens a lot, when they ask, what is the will of God? What does God expect of my life? What should I do with my life? These, those three verses and then and in this one are what I point them to. Because God doesn't make it hard to understand what is the will of God. What does he want from us? He makes it very, very simple. And this this verse, Micah chapter 6 verse 8, is one of my favorites. Now, obviously, I, I love the Bible. I love all of Scripture. But there are certain ones that I, I really enjoy that come back to my mind, that I've memorized, that are constantly refreshing and, and reminding me of certain things. In Micah 6... Verse 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? I, I would summarize that as do justice, love mercy or kindness, and walk humbly as do what God does. That's what justice is. Love what God loves. The, this word here, I've, I've mentioned it a few times, and it's one of my favorite Greek words, partly because it sounds cool, and partly because the more you dig into it and the way that it's used and what it means, it, it's just an amazing one. The word is hesed, but it's translated as mercy or loving kindness or uh, kindness in, in different translations. I would encourage you look that word up and everywhere that it comes up, What it comes down to is love what God loves. God is merciful. He is kind. He is gracious. All of those things are contained in this word. That's what we are to love. And then the last one is live with the right attitude in his presence. Walk humbly. That walk is the way that we live. Humbly is our attitude as we are living with your God. There's a a connection. There's a, a union with God that we are to have. So what does God expect? What is the will of God? Do do what God does. Love what God loves. Live with the right attitude in His presence. So Jesus, going back to, to Mark chapter three, Jesus tells them in this this whole situation, in this whole episode that's been going on, there's a group of people that have come thinking that he's crazy. And that for his good, they need to take custody, take him into uh, their control so that he's dealt with. There's another group that shows up and thinks that he's a liar, that he is blaspheming, that he is under the control of Satan, that that he's just this terrible person. They want to take custody. They want to take control of him to kill him, ultimately, so that he doesn't keep spreading this. But then Jesus is in this crowd, and he, he has had both of these And he says, okay, what is it to be part of his family? What is it to be his mother and his brothers? What does God want or desire? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So what? You can be like the scribe. You can see the truth. You can know the truth. You can have it blatantly and abundantly in front of you. This is who Jesus is. And then reject it. And you will face the consequences for that. There is no other way of salvation than through Jesus. So if you know who he is, you know what he's done, you've known the truth, and you reject that, and say, no, I'm not following Jesus for whatever reason, there is consequences that come with that. Or you can be like Jesus' physical family. They misunderstand it. They misrepresent it. They think he's crazy, though he's not and miss the boat. Now, thankfully, we're going to find out later elsewhere that his family actually do put their trust in him, which is very exciting. But um, at this point, they have misunderstood, and they've they've misinterpreted what they've seen. Or you can be like the disciples, those who followed him. The question is, will you do the will of God? It's not a hard, major, challenging, oh, there's no way that we could possibly do this, because Jesus himself gives us the the ability and the power. The question really comes down to, what is the conclusion that you have to that initial question? Who is Jesus? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he going to be your Lord? Let's pray. Dear my Father Lord, thank you. Thank you for the examples that we have in your word. Thank you for the the accounts of different interactions that Jesus had. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful. Uh, thank you that we have it so easily accessible. Lord, each one of us is faced with how we deal with Jesus. Are we going to accept him or are we going to reject him? Help us to submit willingly and readily help us to do your will to be your family and help us to acknowledge that jesus is lord he displays his power and his authority in so many ways and the things that he does and the ways that he explains those and the, the teaching that he has we simply need to bow the knee to trust him as lord so lord, help us to do that help us to live out That decision. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are going to stand together.